I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. In October 1997, two overlapping groups of friends from New York, one known as the Cream Team, the other as the Gods, were living in York, Pennsylvania. Three of these young men were Danny Steele, Melvin Bethune, and Taishim Crocker. On October 5, 1997, at a corner dice game, Melvin and Taishim spoke to another New York guy about a previous beef when gunshots rang out and the crowd dispersed. But no one was hurt until about five minutes later and two blocks away when a young man named Raymond Clark, had been fatally shot. When the investigation of the murder led to Danny Steele, he told the police that Raymond's death was part of a larger organized action involving a disagreement between rival New York gangs at the Dice Game. He alleged that Melvin and Taishim had rounded up some muscle from back in New York, including Steele and three others, to confront the opposing gang, the Gods. In the lead-up to this confrontation, they allegedly checked into a motel and hatched a plan that allegedly resulted in the death of Raymond Clark. Clearly, local law enforcement had only one choice. To believe Danny Steele and do their part on the front lines of America's war on drugs by taking as many of these New York gangsters off their streets as they possibly could. But this is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, we're going to cover a case in which the sole assailant who is responsible for the murder got off with less than three years for giving false testimony against two innocent men. And I'm going to introduce one of those men now. He's calling in from a maximum security prison in Pennsylvania. Taishim Crocker, even though I hate the reason why you're at where you're at, but I got to say, I'm really happy and honored to have you. I'm glad I'm here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. And with him is his post-conviction pro bono attorney, Leticia Chavez-Fried. Leticia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jason. You're also very welcome. So, Taishim, this crime happened in Pennsylvania, but you're not from there. You're originally from the Bronx, right? So tell me a little bit about your childhood. I was born to a teenage mother. My mom was 16. You know, She wasn't ready to be a mother yet. So uh, she put me in foster care. And I spent my 
first four years out in Queens. It was like 81. She decided she wanted to be back. I moved back to the Bronx. It was rough. We were we were poor. I was pretty much terrified of my mom. That was like the only person I was scared of. Around the age of 12, I, I was back in foster care. And uh, out of her presence, I just became a street kid. So Taishim, he had a pretty hard life. And he's living in the Bronx. You know, this is at the height of the crack epidemic. Friends of his are literally dying. I went out to York, PA because uh, my best friend had just got killed. I was 14. He was 15 when he got killed. The next day, another one of my closest friends got killed. And I was offered the opportunity to go to York. So I, I jumped on the bus and went out there. What did you do to support yourself to survive out there? I started hustling. I started taking packs from people, older dudes. So this is the sort of thing where you did the dirty work for the older guys, because in theory, at least, a minor wouldn't get into that much trouble, right? That's how it goes. So it's my understanding that he's a pretty low-level drug dealer, him and a lot of the kids. He also runs with a group of young people known as like the Cream Team. And, you know, there's several groups, but two of them are called the Gods and the other one's the Cream Team. The district attorney's office tried to paint this as some gang, but really Cream just means cash rules everything around me. So they were Wu-Tang fans. Yes. And I mean, anyone who's aware of Wu-Tang, Cash Rules Everything Around Me is probably their, could be their most iconic song. And terms like gods and earths, some of the members of Wu-Tang are really into the theories of the 5% nation, where those terms come from. And we could get into all of that on a totally different podcast. But Wu-Tang had just come out with their debut album, Enter the 36 Chambers, in 1993. So guys like Taishim and Melvin, that was the soundtrack of their childhood. The cream team and the gods uh, were a bunch of kids from the Bronx. We was growing up together. We went to the same schools. We partied together. And we ended up in Pennsylvania, you know, hustling. So were you on the radar of the York police before all of this happened? I spent about a week in prison for a couple of bags of marijuana. I was like 18. My bill was like 40 grand. 40 fucking grand for some weed? <laughs> Jesus. Well, I mean, this was the 90s when the war on drugs was... In full swing. It still is, unfortunately, to a large extent. And if you're listening to us right now, you might want to check out our new series called The War on Drugs. We're going to have it linked in the bio. Check it out, The War on Drugs podcast. And back then, as we've seen time and again on this program, even involvement in low-level drug dealing could make that person a target for a wrongful conviction. So let's get to early October 1997. In the lead-up to this dice game and the shooting, there was some actual beef that had started a few days before between your co-defendant, Melvin Bethune, and a friend of this guy, Kendu Smith. And this served as an alleged motive for what happened later. But this was kind of like a small-time beef, right? There was no conflict that rose to the level of wanting to take a life. Right, and Kendo Smith wasn't the victim anyway, but rather a guy named Raymond Skip Clark, who I'm guessing was one of the gods as well? No, he wasn't a member of the gods. He wasn't even friends with Smith that I know of. That night, no guys were at this dice game except Kendall Smith. So the state's theory about a beef between the gods and the cream team is not holding up so far. It's full of holes. But this beef, however inconsequential, was something you intended to bring up with Kendu Smith when you saw him at the dice game. This was October 5th, 1997, on the corner of Maple and Duke in York, Pennsylvania, where there was a regular dice game. Kendu Smith was there, as well as Melvin Bethune, Danny Steele. 
You had just got back from the Bronx, and a bit before 11 p.m., you arrived at the game, and Raymond Clark was there as well. I never saw Raymond Clark that night, but according to court documents, he was he was at the dice game. He was playing games. I had got to the dice game, and I told the work I needed to talk to him. Before we could talk, a shot was fired. He ran, and I ducked. No one knows who fired that shot. It came from behind me when I ducked and I ran. You know, it was more shots fired. No one was injured. Approximately five to ten minutes later, and two blocks away, according to the trial transcript, more shots were fired. That is where Raymond Clark was shot at. Not at the dice game. So not only had you not even seen the victim at the dice game, but at this point you had no idea that anyone had even gotten hurt. So shots were fired. Everyone scattered. Total chaos. Did you have a clue? Did anyone have a clue why this was even happening? There's essentially no serious beef at the time where they feel like they should be targeted for any reason. But they're taking off because there's gunfire, and they know what gunfire can do. So I went and got a hotel. But according to the state's theory, you checked into the hotel before going to the dice game, before Raymond Clark's death, sometime between like 10 and 11 p.m. That is what they wanted the jury and the court to believe. I checked into the Super 8 at about 12.31 in the morning. I let Mel know where I was going. I let Danny know where I was going, and they spent the night with me. And at that point, not only did you not know that Skip Clark was dead, but you also didn't know that your boy Danny Steele was about to use a shared room at the Super 8 as a premise for a false statement, which really ends up being the basis of the state's entire case. And we'll get to that in a bit. But first, Leticia, what do we know about the initial investigation? Like, how did they even end up coming upon Danny? So we have no idea exactly what happened. Taishim's lawyer, the person who would have gotten the box of evidence or whatever, he's passed. When we go to Melvin's attorney, this is over 20 plus years ago, he doesn't have that box. So the usual trough of information was not available. But what we do know about this incident is that there were a lot of witnesses some of whom spoke with you and your lead investigator, Kitty Haley, way later in 2021. Well, what we find out later is that Raymond Clark, he's found with drugs on his person, and it is noted that he apparently owed Danny Steele some money. Turns out, maybe I think like a week after that, Danny was interrogated and arrested. And at least four people have testified, both at trial and in post-conviction, that Danny Steele was the shooter. So that should have been it. But instead, a story and a strategy was being concocted with Danny Steele in order to drag more people down the rabbit hole with him, turning this tragedy into an opportunity for the authorities to sweep the streets from those they considered undesirable, namely Melvin and Taishim, who for months went about their lives, eventually hearing about Raymond Clark's death and having no idea that one of their friends, Danny, was saving himself from life in prison at their expense. By creating this phony narrative in which members of the cream team met at the Super 8 motel and conspired to confront the gods at this dice game about the beef with Melvin. And this group allegedly included Taishim, Melvin, Danny, and three other men from New York, one of whom was named Corleone. Corleone was a made-up figure. Danny still made up Corleone so he could uh, pin this homicide on somebody. He made Corleone a shooter. It's like they sat around and watched The Godfather and then went and tried a case. That's how it feels. Some guy named Corleone, who's never been identified, and some other guys from New York, they all go to the Super 8 Motel, and they want blood for what happened to Melvin yesterday. Melvin was disrespected or something, and 
they want blood. So they're all going to get guns from a friend's house, and then they're going to go down there and shoot up the gods at a dice game. Now, the theory continued that in order to arrive at the dice game before the shootings took place around 11.30 p.m., this alleged crew of muscle from the Bronx had to have checked into the Super 8 motel by 10.30 p.m. or earlier in order to have time for a 30- to 60-minute plotting session, as well as picking up the guns. But when they arrived at the dice game, Taishim allegedly pointed a gun at Kendu Smith and tried to shoot him, but the gun allegedly malfunctioned and didn't fire. So the rest of this alleged cream team hit squad opened fire, and everyone at the dice game ran for their lives. No one was hurt, and Ken Smith has since gone on the record saying that Taishim never pulled a gun on him. Other eyewitnesses also corroborated that. The only evidence of this version of events is Danny Steele's statement, which continued, saying that then he, another man, and this fictitious guy named Corleone chased Raymond Skip Clark, and this fictional Corleone guy, not Danny Steele, allegedly shot and killed Clark. So that's how Steele shifted total blame from himself and alleged that he was just a co-conspirator, not the lone shooter. Now, Danny Steele, this is important. He is charged with the exact same crimes as Melvin and Taishim. So you would think he'd get the exact same punishment or close for murder, for conspiracy to commit murder. He did two years in the county jail, presumably because he couldn't go to state prison because you know, he was a known snitch. From what I understand, he had also been convicted of perjury twice before. So this is the guy on whom the entirety of the state's case rests and what they used to issue arrest warrants for both Melvin and Taishim. And at the time, Melvin had just pled guilty to some unrelated drug charges. Correct. He takes a plea and he's getting ready to go to prison. And the police come to let him know that he's being indicted on these charges. And he's just shocked. There's no conversation. They don't take him down to the police station and interview him. They had all the information they wanted from Danny Steele. Now, Taishim, you were back in New York at the time, and during a routine traffic stop, NYPD discovered that you were wanted in New York, Pennsylvania. I didn't know until I got arrested that I was a fugitive. I got picked up January 1998, pulled over on 145th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. I was arrested, and I haven't been on the street since. And while PD picks me up, I'm extradited down to York, where I was uh, charged. When he gets to York and he's in the county jail, there's no interview. The information and the story has already been told by Danny Steele. But there's literally a 15-minute drive at one point from one drop-off location to the jail with a police officer. Dennis Williams was the arresting detective while he's driving me to the York County Prison. He said, I know you didn't kill Raymond Clark, but I do know you're part of the cream team. I can get you a deal if you cooperate. And I told him, I didn't know nothing. I'm innocent. A few months after that, they offered me another deal, five to ten, and I turned that down. The day trial started, they offered me another deal. They were going to dismiss all degrees of homicide if I pled guilty to aggravated assault, and I turned that down. The deal Dennis Williams offered me is the deal that Danny Steele ended up getting.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Danny Steele did less than three years in the county jail. That's jail, right? Not prison. And that was part of his deal to avoid running into other people who he had flipped on previously. And so no one was ever charged with being Skip Clark's shooter. Corleone certainly wasn't. It's hard to charge a ghost after all. And now all three of you had been charged with murder, but only by way of conspiracy and accomplice liability. And this is why your arrival time at the Super 8 Motel is so important to the state's theory, as is the part of Danny Steele's test of lies, where he alleged that you drew a gun on Kendo Smith that never did fire. So conspiracy liability requires proof of an agreement or a common design to commit the unlawful act for which the person is convicted. So a person cannot be convicted of conspiracy for merely being present during the commission of a crime. There has to be some step taken, some proof of the agreement, you know, and then obviously the crime. For accomplice liability, it requires more than mere presence during the commission of a criminal act even if the accused knew that the crime was to be committed. So we see like accomplice liability, like after the fact, you know, someone who's helping to conceal or clean something up. So these are really what Taishim as well as Melvin were convicted under. Also, you know, a lot of that prosecutorial case lied on something called transferred intent, which basically means if I pull out a gun and I'm trying to shoot you, but I accidentally shoot your friend or someone standing next to you, you know, it would have been attempted murder because I purposefully knowingly was aiming at you, but it's still first degree murder, even though I had no intention of killing your friend because the intention had already formed. And so throughout the trial, we'll hear of transferred intent in those transcripts. So because you were alleged to have met beforehand, establishing the intent, and then followed through with your part of the supposed conspiracy by allegedly pulling a gun on Ken Du Smith, that then made you in turn responsible in some degree for the murder of Skip Clark, the alleged end result of this alleged organized confrontation. 
I thought innocent. I didn't do it. I didn't realize what conspiracy laws accomplice liability was. I didn't realize when you move pieces on a chessboard to a line of the way you want it to be seen, you can make something look like something that it wasn't. We were kids, you know, and our adversaries were grown men, seasoned, you know, politicians, prosecutors. And I did not realize what was going on until it was too late. That they had fabricated a narrative with Danny Steele to convict you through these conspiracy and accomplice liability laws that you were unaware of. So Melvin was already in prison for the unrelated drug charges, so he didn't bond out, but neither did you. You both were being held separately from Danny Steele, but at this point, you didn't even know about what he had done, right? So when did you first realize what he was doing to you? The first time I see him is at my preliminary hearing, and he's testifying against me. You know, he's saying that I'm the leader of the cream team, that prior to the dice game shooting that we met at a motel and agreed to kill someone. Actually, at the preliminary hearing, he said we, we agreed to step to these guys to try to squash this beef. With the proceedings, his testimony, you know, would constantly change and get more dramatic and, and more incriminating. There were a lot of inconsistencies in the telling of these various stories by Danny Steele, but there wasn't necessarily a rigorous, vigorous defense from Taishim's counsel. Melvin's counsel, when looking at the transcript, tended to do a better job. Right. Both families had hired counsel prior to the January 99 trial, but only Melvin's family was able to pay and maintain counsel. So this attorney that was representing me at the time, Alan Smith, you know, he was never paid in full and uh, he filed the motion to withdraw his counsel. I didn't know I could have still been given counsel by the state, which probably would have been a bad attorney anyway, as bad as he was. But he never did nothing after that. After the judge told him the motion was denied, we continued to proceed to trial with, without an investigation ever going on. So it sounds like you didn't even have an attorney. Absolutely, I didn't have an attorney. I didn't have a suit. I didn't have shoes. I didn't have family. I didn't have an attorney. Taishim would come to the courthouse not in a suit but in an orange jumpsuit. So this was not, you know, someone being able to put forth their best defense. And in order to combat the state, especially with what we now know that they were willing to hide, you were going to need a vigorous investigation from zealous attorneys and, and a whole team that would have done things like call Ken Do Smith to the stand. He has since gone on the record that you did not, in fact, point a gun at him, which directly contradicts the state's narratives. Now, how your counsel didn't at least contact Ken Do is just, it's irresponsible and bizarre. It's even, it's disgusting, actually, but even more bizarre is how Danny Steele did something on the stand that I, even I've never heard of before. Throughout the trial, he kept mentioning that you know, he was incentivized, that he's hoping, he's hoping that the prosecutors do right by him and only give him two to five years in the county. And that's exactly what they give him. He literally told the judge and jury why his own statement was unreliable. He's like, I'm receiving a benefit for lying here. He's spelling it out. Now, how are they supposed to trust anything he said? But they did. I can't get over this. And we already went over what Steele said. Before the shooting at the dice game, he placed Taishim, Melvin, himself, and three other guys, including this Corleone character, at the Super 8 motel between 10 and 11 p.m. for this conspiracy meeting, and the manager of the Super 8, a guy named Alfred Milburn, corroborated this. Why? We're not sure. Because the clerk who actually checked Taishim into the hotel, the person who actually knew this information, was a woman named Terry Flinchbaugh-Seiler, and what she told police 
directly and totally contradicted Albert Milburn's phony narrative. She's the one who checks Tai Chi Min. She knows this. Now, Raymond Clark dies at 11.30 p.m. that night. That's when he's shot. We know this for a fact. She doesn't come on until 11 p.m. Right. The state spoke to her, but they didn't want to hear about how Tai Chi checked in at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, and that this conspiracy meeting, in fact, never took place. She tried to offer help, and they didn't want to hear it. She had documents, you know, where he signed, as well as any telephone calls he would have made in, out of that room, because it's the 90s. And they could have turned that over to Taishim's lawyers. And that never happened. And perhaps these documents, the telephone records, may have also been timestamped. Miss Flinchbaugh Seiler says that the records she maintained for the hotel have a bottom section, which indicates the exact times, the calls made from each room. So it's not known if the police or prosecutors were in possession of that part of the document, but the documents used at trial were the only ones that she was asked to review, that she was asked to talk about. And they don't have the exact times, the calls made. And no one from the defense went looking for call logs. It's totally irresponsible. I mean, it would have been helpful to know what time the calls were made, but that specifically wasn't in the documents used by the state of trial. And from what I understand, they deliberately limited Terry Flinchbaugh Seiler's testimony. She was told by the prosecutors, you're not allowed to speak. You're going to answer yes or no to my questions. Right. They were merely trying to establish that a phone call had taken place, but they specifically did not want to know when. And they definitely didn't want to know when her shift started or when Taishim, Melvin, and Danny were checked in because that would have blown up their case. They knew about Terry and these phone records, so it looks like they knew that they were presenting false testimony. Now, the phone call was important to them because it corroborated Melvin's presence at the alleged conspiracy meeting. It was alleged that he had called his girlfriend at the time named Tucker Redman and told her what his intention was, which was to go down to the dice game and shoot up the gods. It was also alleged that a 14-year-old girl named Nikki Rhodes overheard this conversation. The state made a number of false statements during opening and closing that they never backed up by calling these alleged witnesses, Tucker and Nikki. Our investigator was able to speak with Tucker. So she was dating Melvin. She did speak with him that night. She never told the prosecutor or the police that Melvin was interested in hurting or shooting up the young men on the corner playing craps. When she discovered what the prosecutor, specifically Prosecutor Kelly, had said in open court, she was not present at the time, but she became incensed to learn that he claimed she came to court willingly. She was subpoenaed to come to court and that he had lied about what she had heard and said that evening. When she discovered that the prosecutor during a sidebar had told the judge that her conversation was overheard and passed along by Nikki Rhodes. She proclaimed that also to be a lie. Nikki confirmed that she had no knowledge of the interaction between Melvin Bethune and Taka Redman on the night of the shooting of Skip Clark. She was adamant that she was a young girl at the time with no knowledge of anything related to the crime. She did not testify and she was not asked to testify. I guess the state strategy was if you're going to lie, go big. And they were able to hide those lies from these alleged witnesses because witnesses aren't typically allowed to sit in court and watch the proceedings. But here, it seems this rule was a convenient way to hide them from what was being said about them, like Kalanda Chance, who had told the police that she had been at the scene earlier in the evening but left prior to the shooting and knew nothing about it. Now, what did she tell your investigator, Kitty Haley, 
in 2021. Kalanda Chance, she was provided with a copy of the trial transcript and was upset to read that the prosecutor was attempting to tie her into a web of lies about Melvin wanting to shoot up men on the corner. She never knew about the plan to use her as a link between Tucker Redman's conversation and the actual shooting. She further claimed that the prosecutors were trying to make two groups of friends, the cream team and the guards, look like a hardened criminal gang, even though that was not so. But even if you want to believe that these two groups were hardened criminal organizations hell-bent on destroying the otherwise decent, hardworking town of York, Pennsylvania, the evidence simply doesn't support the state's theory. Terry Flinchbuss-Seiler was the clerk who checked Taishim into the Super 8, and her shift started at 11 p.m. So even if he was waiting there for her shift to start before he checked in, there's just not enough time to check in the cream team, have a 30-minute to an hour-long meeting to conspire about confronting the gods, go to another dress to pick up the guns, go to the dice game, shoot up the place, and then chase down and kill Raymond Skip Clark by 11.30. Do all that shit in 30 minutes? It's impossible. And they knew it was impossible. But they went with the theory, and the judge told the jury that if Ty wasn't at that motel prior to the shooting, Ty could not be found guilty as an accomplice or a co-conspirator in this case. But while I was on trial, I didn't have the information I'm in possession of now. Right. They did, though. And the state used testimony that they knew was false in order to trick the jury into believing that this alleged conspiracy meeting was both plausible and real. And I'm sure Danny's admission to his involvement acted as a stamp of legitimacy. Then they alluded to this alleged phone confession from Melvin that was never actually confirmed or corroborated, and the jury bought it lock, stock, and barrel. They convicted you both and sentenced you to life in prison. I watched Melvin cry after he was convicted. I cried. I, didn't, I couldn't believe it. I was in disbelief. I didn't even know we could get life because we didn't kill anybody. No, I'm not telling this story. I'm living this story. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
prison. It's something different to everybody, you know. It's like a hospital. It's like a hotel. It's like a hideout. It's like a hangout. It's like a hostage situation. It's the worst home. Being wrongfully convicted is about as fun as falling off a 20-story building. It's been a struggle. I grew up in prison as a scrawny little kid. I hate it here today as much as I did the first day. You never get used to it. There's nothing more urgent than freedom. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to look at myself like a hostage. Fighting to get back to my family. Melvin's trying to make peace with the fact that he has a son he'll never watch grow up, that he's going to be spending the rest of his life in a prison for a crime he didn't commit. I don't believe Melvin has ever received legal help, um, maybe one time for a post-conviction relief. I don't know that he learned to use the law library and advocate for himself like Taishim did. Every waking moment I'm fighting for my life. He was giving me the worst attorneys. You know, my first attorney was sleeping in the same prison I was in for DUIs. When he dropped the ball, they gave me another lawyer. She was helpful, but she was in over her head because her expertise was social security claims. So it was really me. I had to learn the law myself. So you've taught yourself the law, as we often see is absolutely necessary for our guests to do. And you also sought outside help, like investigators and lawyers, and you've been funding that by writing and selling books. <laughs> Who are you, dude? That's amazing. I mean, I see you've written eight books. I've written 15 books. I got eight published. Uh, they're all available for purchase. I just received, by the way, your latest book. It's called It Could Happen to Any of Us. And that's like a mantra of mine. So I'm really looking forward to reading it. And we're going to make sure to link your books in the bio. This is how you've been funding your fight for freedom. And I hope our audience will show their support. So let's talk about that fight. You mentioned that you had some appellate attorneys that were about as useless as your own, as your original trial lawyer. And in Pennsylvania, post-conviction, I'm not so sure it matters if the lawyers are bad or not, since the post-conviction statutes make the fight even more difficult than usual. Now, if I understand this correctly, you can find new evidence, even Brady material, but if that evidence could have possibly been found, that means it was available to you, and therefore it cannot be considered new evidence. For example, since the Super 8 clerk, Terry Flinchboss Siler, was alive and available to be questioned, what she has to say is not considered new evidence. And the fact that the state didn't share it doesn't make it a Brady violation because you could have discovered it on your own, or your lawyer could have, which sounds fucking absurd. And then in this case, since they were co-defendants, if Melvin had an attorney who litigated something already, the issue can't be raised. So options run out very quickly and doors keep closing and you've been met with denial after denial even though you've amassed a, a formidable case for actual innocence. In 2003, I found out that Danny Steele had a secret deal with the Commonwealth, the two and a half to five. So um, I filed my first PCRA on my own in 2003. I was unsuccessful because they said that this information was in the public domain and that I, should, I could have brought it in the first PCRA, the council PCRA, with the attorney they gave me who never read the record, never interviewed me, never tried to interview anybody. See, this is the kind of bullshit I'm talking about. Since the information was in the public domain, meaning that it existed among all the information in the world and wasn't being kept under lock and key, then it was technically in the public domain during his first post-conviction motion, and his counsel didn't find it and build a motion around it, so then the issue cannot be raised again. 
Oh, I don't even know what to say. And then there's only a certain amount of time that it can be raised. The, the judge felt like this information was in the public domain between the time of me filing it and the window closing on my first PCR rate. And in Pennsylvania back then, you'd only get 60 days. Since legislation, you know, it's 365 days now. Oh, yeah, that's really fucking generous. I mean, who does legislation like that serve or punish? Think about it. It's not like people who are dead to rights guilty are making credible cases for actual innocence, or at least not likely. So shutting the door on these post-conviction motions pretty much solely kept the innocent incarcerated. Since that time, though, that legislation has changed. The presumption of knowledge is no longer a, a reason to foreclose your post-conviction motion. 20 years ago it was. Today it's not. So much good it does for you, though. Yeah, yeah, you can't go back. There's no retroactivity. You can't go back and fix what's already happened. So after appealing your denials in 2003 in the state courts, you went federal. I challenged my conviction on the federal level because uh, my constitutional rights was violated. The two major issues was that uh, the trial court gave the wrong jury instruction as it applied to accomplice liability. And the second issue was ineffective assistance counsel for failure to investigate. Those were my two strongest issues. And after two and a half years, three years, I filed my own hate too. But uh, it was eventually denied. You then filed your fourth PCRA petition in 2012 because Danny Steele recanted his trial testimony. Yeah, you heard that right. Danny Steele was finally doing the right thing. He sent me an affidavit stating that he had been pressured to give false testimony that he had witnessed me to the gun to the works head and pull the trigger. He also testified about the fake motel meeting, and he was ultimately found to be incredible because he was no longer in jeopardy from the Commonwealth, but he was still allegedly in jeopardy from his co-defendants. You and Melvin, who were both locked up for life while he's out there doing whatever he's doing, living the dream. You know what I find incredible? The fucking balls on these judges. I mean, unfucking believable The only evidence in the case besides the Super 8 manager, who we know didn't know his ass from his elbow, the only evidence is Danny Steele's word, which apparently no longer matters. I guess if anyone could be a good judge of Danny's credibility, though, It'd be the guys who cooked up the lies with him to begin with. Both of the prosecutors also testified that day. They took the stand that day and said if he testified falsely, it was something he chose to do. They didn't encourage him to do it. So he found them to be more credible than Danny Steele. So now you find a way to bolster the recantation. You got in touch with Kendu Smith, like your trial attorney should have done in the first place, and he was finally ready to corroborate Danny Steele's recantation. So that was the focus of your last of your PCRA petitions filed in August 2015, and an evidentiary hearing was held in August 2017. And at this evidentiary hearing, Kendall Smith shows up, and he testifies under oath that Todd never put a machine gun in my head and pulled the trigger. I don't know why Danny still made that up. Had it happened, I wouldn't be here today saying it didn't happen. Right. Why would he be standing up for his attempted murderer in court? So this adds legitimacy to his testimony, which transfers legitimacy to Danny Steele's recantation, and this would qualify as new evidence in other states, but not in Pennsylvania. This was denied as untimely because this witness was available at the time of trial. It's like running into a brick wall over and over again. Now, meanwhile, at this time, a chain of events began involving Melvin's son. Now, this must have been right after this evidentiary hearing, maybe 2017, 2018, something really bad happened. Happened. And then that thing was almost made even worse. Leticia, can you explain? Guess who gets found shot multiple times in his car? 
Danny Steele. I mean, he's just riddled with bullets. York County decides that Melvin Bethune's own son, who grew up without his father, was the person who killed Danny Steele, that he was so angry about him allegedly perjuring himself, naming his father, that he decided to lie in wait and kill Danny Steele. Well, Melvin Bethune's son decided to take this thing to trial, and he prevailed. He was found not guilty. And Danny Steele is dead, which is very sad, of course, but there are many people who may have harbored very bad feelings towards Danny Steele. I mean, I wouldn't blame Melvin's son if he was angry with Danny Steele. Hell, I'm angry with Danny Steele, even posthumously, but that doesn't mean that Melvin's son murdered anybody. I mean, I don't know all the details, so I won't comment on the investigation or the prosecution. I do hope that things have changed significantly in York County since the time they wrongfully convicted Melvin. But at the very least, I'm glad one of the Bethunes appears to have had a competent attorney, which was also on the horizon for Melvin and Taishim. One of your advocates, Omar Jeanette, was instrumental in getting you the competent attorney who we have with us today, Leticia Chavez Free. And apparently it started off as a change.org petition that put you on the radar of the Innocence Project of Pennsylvania when Leticia just happened to be looking for some pro bono work and reached out to them. And so I contacted the Innocence Project and they gave me this case. I collected every record I possibly could. And of course, I realized that Melvin Bethune was also behind bars for the same crime as Taishim. And that is the, about the time where I hire Kitty Haley. She went back in time, essentially. She spent weeks and weeks in York and talked to, you know, people who knew all of the players involved. Kendo, you know, Bethune's girlfriend, the victim, Raymond Clark's mother. Kitty Haley went to New York and went and sat with this woman on more than one occasion and talked to her about her son and what he meant to her. And we have an affidavit. She literally said that the prosecutors, and she named them, told her that Danny Steele was responsible for the murder of her son, but they want as many gang members as possible off these streets, and so they're going to get all three of them, and they're not giving Danny Steele a deal. They're not doing that. He's going to get the same amount of time as the others. Well, that's not what happened. You know, I didn't think there was room for these prosecutors to get any less likable, but trust me, there is even more room. And as we've already discussed, Kitty Haley spoke to all the women who the prosecutors lied about at trial, Tucker Redman, Kalanda Chance, and of course, the 14-year-old girl, Nikki Rhodes. Then she spoke with Terry flinchbaugh Siler, and we know that she discovered that Terry began her shift at 11 p.m. and checked Taishim into the Super 8 well after Skip Clark had already died, which means this entire case just fell apart. So uh, I meet Kitty Haley the beginning of 2021, and it was thrilling for me when she said, you know, you've been telling the same story for 20 years, and it felt good. But uh, Kitty Haley gets out there in the field. She speaks to Terry and the motel clerk from the Subaru Motel, and she adamantly states that she told the prosecution that this theory was flawed, that I could not have been there any time prior to 11 p.m. They said I was there at 10 p.m., but you know where I was at at 10 p.m.? On my way back from New York. I was on the highway at 10 p.m. And uh, she also made one distinct statement and feature. She said that the evidence that they presented at my trial, something was missing. 
and it had to be detached that it was ripped off. The ripped off piece is called the bottom of a folio, a folio that contains information they would have told whoever wanted to see it exactly what time the room was rented, if and when any calls were made, how long the calls were, and where they went to. The jury never got an opportunity to see this. The defense was never in possession of this. And I didn't even know it existed until Kitty Haley furnished the legal team with her conclusions and these statements. And so presumably those documents are sitting in the district attorney's office today. And that's what we're fighting for to get. But also this woman has signed an affidavit. She's willing to come in. And this woman doesn't know anybody. She has no skin in the game. If an uninterested, objective party witness is telling you that your theory is flawed and you decide to perpetuate this fraud and allow for it to go uncorrected for 20-something years, based on my studies, this would be considered deliberate and willful deception. No words could do this injustice any justice. So now that we've heard everything that Kitty dug up, you all were able to petition the courts based on this evidence. And they said that this was litigated by Melvin back in 2007. And it was denied back then as untimely because Terry Flinchbaugh Siler was available to testify at trial. So this couldn't be considered new evidence and most certainly was past the deadline. And I mean, what we're seeing in this case over and over again is ineffective assistance at trial. Absolutely. It all, it all comes down to the beginning stages, trial. So at trial, I had a lawyer who had checked out on me. But the beautiful thing is he did file a Brady. He wrote them asking for everything that was exculpatory. We know today that they withheld some information that was requested. I mean, there's always been a solid case for Brady violations and ineffective assistance here. But so far, I don't think it's a stretch to say that you have been failed not only by your attorneys along the way, but by the entire judicial system. I understand you have plans to file with the York County Conviction Integrity Unit, so we hope that they will be able to provide the relief that you have so rightfully deserved. But if not, I'm afraid your only option might be clemency. You know you have my full support and the support of our whole team. And right now, I'm going to ask for our audience to lend their support as well. So we're going to have a lot of things linked in the bio, but the number one call to action is to sign the petition to support your release. I'm literally begging our audience Please join us on this one. Just go there right now and sign the petition. It'll take you a minute and a half. And now we go to my favorite part of the show, which is called Closing Arguments, where first I thank both of you incredible people for being here. And now I'm just going to kick back in my chair, turn my microphone off, and just listen to any final thoughts that you may have. So let's start with Leticia and then Taishim. Please take us out into the sunset for you and for Melvin. America as a country and our court system has largely been steeped like a tea bag in racism. And some people are considered worthy and some people are not considered worthy. And I would offer that back in the 90s, two young black men from New York are really considered outsiders and their lives were not worth a lot. I will never know what the prosecutor was thinking. I don't know the prosecutor, but I know that the hat was hung on somebody who had multiple convictions for perjury, who was highly incentivized, who pled guilty to the same crime, and who served less than three years at a county jail. You know, that in and of itself is a crime. We know that these two young men did not 
commit this crime. And what I can say to Taishim as well as Melvin is I'm not giving up until they walk out. Just support. This is a, a great cause. I fought hard for my freedom for 20 plus years. I've been incarcerated almost a quarter century. I'm innocent. I was wrongfully convicted. You can go to change.org and sign this petition that was initiated by DJ Coco Chanel. You can visit my website. I want my life back. I want to be free. I want to turn my books into movies. I want to help other people wrongfully convicted. I want to one day start my own innocence project and be able to help people regain their freedom and their voices back and be returned to their families. That is, that's all I want. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.